We are here today requesting emergency use authorization of mRNA-1273 as a two-dose primary series for the prevention of COVID-19 in young children, two to five years of age, and infants and toddlers, six to 23 months of age. On Wednesday, an independent panel for the FDA recommended the use of coronavirus vaccines for kids under five. They're the only group in the U.S. that still does not have access to the vaccines. But now, that could change as early as next week. For many parents of young kids, that announcement is long overdue. First of all, it's the constant fear. And I can say that as a parent, the constant fear of if and when is my child going to get COVID. And I unfortunately think that the rhetoric now is not if, but it is when, because our kids are not vaccinated. And we have data to support that. Dr. Anita Patel is a pediatric critical care doctor at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Since the beginning of the pandemic, she has been treating kids with the most severe cases of COVID. And, you know, one of the big fears I have as a physician, frankly, is what are going to be the long-term morbidity, long-term effects of all these COVID infections? And I think for parents such as myself that are nervous, and particularly parents that are appropriately nervous because their kids have underlying medical conditions, it's going to allow us to live. It's going to allow us to live with the knowledge that our kids, you know, even if they don't have excellent protection against infection, they have extraordinary protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 16th. Today, a big step toward vaccines for young kids. But why did it take so long for us to get here? The vaccines recommended for use are from Moderna and Pfizer, but they're a little bit different from the ones available to adults and older kids. The Moderna vaccine is two doses given a month apart. The Pfizer vaccine is three doses. Early data shows the Pfizer vaccine is 80% effective at preventing symptomatic illness. Looking at the Moderna vaccine, it's been 51% effective in preventing illness in the youngest kids and 37% effective in children 2 to 5. Now, that sounds like a big difference. But experts say we need more real-world data before we really understand if one vaccine is better than the other. And you may be thinking, all of those numbers sound really low compared to the efficacy of coronavirus vaccines for adults. But Dr. Anita Patel says comparing them is like apples and oranges— And we have to remember, we are in a really different phase of the pandemic. The numbers that we think about when we think about the adult vaccine trials were during the ancestral strain of COVID and also during um, partially into the Delta strain, whereas we're looking at efficacy numbers during Omicron. And again, we also have to remember that the vaccines that these children are being administered were based on the ancestral or first strain of COVID 
we already know that unfortunately Omicron has this immune escape um, and our original vaccines don't quite work as well at preventing infection. However, they still do work extraordinarily well at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So when I'm really thinking about guiding parents to make these decisions to get these six-month to five-year-olds vaccinated, I remind them that we're really trying to prevent the serious, rare, but serious complications that we know COVID can cause. You know, American adults have had COVID-19 vaccines available to them for over a year, and kids over five have also been able to get these vaccines since last fall. Why has it taken until now for the vaccine for kids under five? Yeah, so, you know, they organized these trials as they would most, where they first tested them on adults and then started marching the age down. As a policy, we don't tolerate kids having serious side effects from medications or vaccines. So again, starting the trials in our older patients made a lot of sense. Unfortunately, there was a quite a significant delay in the pediatric trials. And part of that was, again, they wanted to make sure that the vaccines were first safe and effective in adults and then in the older kids. And then secondarily, it is notoriously hard to enroll young patients in trials. I mean, if you even just look at the number of parents that have vaccinated their 5 to 12-year-olds, it's still, you know, just under 30 percent. And that's in a vaccine that's been available for quite some time. So parents just have a really low tolerance for administering new vaccines to their children. So it's unfortunately a numbers game. It's a willingness game. I'll be honest with you. I think the one unfortunate part of um, sort of this delay in uh, the pediatric vaccines for a six-month to five-year-olds is that we we're sitting on the Moderna data since May. I do think that the delay in reviewing that until June was not incredibly necessary, but I also understand the philosophy of wanting to get both pediatric vaccines approved at the same time. I know that it's apples and oranges, but would the efficacy of vaccines for young kids actually be higher if the trials didn't take so long? I can say with almost 100 percent certainty, yes, because we know that our vaccinations are excellent against the ancestral strain and the Delta variant. But guess what? There's hope. And I just need to throw this in. They are already testing the Omicron specific booster in our youngest children and also in the older age group. So for those of us that are, you know, looking at the data, you know, hungrily, I'm very excited that they've already started these trials so that hopefully when we need them, these specific boosters will be available. Dr. Patel, can you tell us a little bit more about the complications of making the actual vaccine? I mean, we often hear things like kids are not just small adults, but mm -hmm. like, what does that actually mean? I think complications is not necessarily the right word, but challenges is maybe the right word. And so the first thing is a dose finding study. So essentially both Moderna and Pfizer actually initially tested two different doses to see not only what was eliciting a good antibody response, but also what patients were tolerating. So there are absolutely 
very non-serious side effects from these vaccines and from every single vaccine we give. And I think it's incredibly important to be honest about that, because if we say, you know, as pediatricians, you know, we love vaccines. But if we say there are no side effects and suddenly a parent calls us saying, hey, my kid has a fever, that's not appropriate education that we're providing. So In the Pfizer trial, they actually initially tested a 10 microgram dose on these younger patients. But what they found is that patients were having too many of these mild side effects, which included fevers, irritability, injection site pain. So they actually marched it down to the three microgram dose. That is a, a also a unique part of the mm. pediatric trials where they're really trying to make sure that they find the minimum amount or the minimum dose necessary to achieve the desired result. How have you seen this delay in the availability of vaccines for young kids play out for kids and families? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, the rhetoric that children don't get COVID, children don't get hospitalized is unequivocally wrong. You know, the hospitalization rates for children, fortunately, are still low, but they still represent up to 1.5 percent of all hospitalizations um, for COVID. So it's not nothing, first of all. You know, when an unvaccinated child is exposed to COVID, they automatically, based on CDC criteria, have to stay home for 10 days. I experienced that in my own home where my child was home for 14 days because of repeated exposures. And I am in a family that we're very fortunate and that I can flex to working from home, even as a critical care physician, because I do do research. And my husband is a lawyer that can work from home. But the entire time that we were going through that period where my daughter was home, the thing that kept creeping into my head is that most families couldn't do this. And honestly, it's de-incentivizing parents to be honest. So not only are you incentivizing people to lie, but also people I'm sure we know people have left their jobs in droves and I'm sure people have lost their jobs too, or they've had to expose others because they needed childcare. How will the approval of these vaccines change where we are in the pandemic right now? So, you know, the approval of these vaccines, I think, will allow parents such as myself and also parents of children that have underlying medical conditions to, number one, breathe a little easier and perhaps take their kids out to do more indoor activities. I'll be honest with you. You know, you know I'm a PICU doctor. I have been on the very conservative side with my daughter. You know, she has still not gone inside a grocery store. And, you know, I feel ridiculous saying that, but I have to also admit my own biases, right? So my bias in life is I only see the sickest of sick patients. I have treated COVID patients from the very beginning of the pandemic. My experience has been the kids that are intubated, the kids that are ventilated, the kids with MISC, the kids that have strokes, you know. So 
again, I, I fully admit that this is a personal bias, but it's a bias that has affected how I sort of allow my kid to interact with the world. Um Now, having said that, I have opened up a little bit. You know, I started her in swim lessons. I've decided to choose activities that, you know, I know will cause her great benefit. And she has been in daycare for almost a year now because that is important for her and incredibly important for our family's mental health. Um, I was listening to the Wednesday FDA committee hearing, and there's a section that's an open forum. And there were several people where they open it to the public to allow them to make statements. And several people kept making the statement that, you know, barely any kids have died from COVID. It's incredibly irresponsible that we're approving this vaccine that's new for them. The FDA is legally prohibited from approving any biological product for emergency use unless all of the following conditions are met. There must be an emergency that poses a risk of death to the target group. The product must be effective in preventing the disease. It must be safe, and finally, the benefits must outweigh the risk. With regard to the first point, children without comorbidities who acquire COVID-19 have a 99.98% survival rate. And, you know, that statement, first of all, there have been 400 children four and under who have died from COVID since the start of the pandemic, just in America. That is more than the number of influenza deaths from 2018 to 2020. And that is more than almost any other vaccine preventable um, illness that we already vaccinate against. So that's the first point. The secondary point is that Kids are not supposed to die, so any death should be taken as a serious event. But more so than just death is also the morbidity or the complications that come from a COVID infection or a hospitalization secondary to COVID. So, you know, those infections, we know that there are small percentages of pediatric patients that develop long COVID. And also in my patients that end up in the ICU on a ventilator, they don't go home and go to school the next day. There is a long recovery ahead for them. So that's why I really think when we're talking about children, talking about death is missing the mark. You really have to think about how is this illness affecting their life, whether it's socially, emotionally, physically, or cognitively. After the break, I talked to Dr. Patel about what it was like for her to get COVID herself. And we talk about her advice for parents as these vaccines start to roll out. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So I have to ask, have you gotten COVID? 
Yes, unfortunately, I have. So I was, as I've sort of alluded to, we've kind of lived under a rock. You know, I had my pandemic baby one month into lockdown. And after that, you know, my postpartum anxiety got the best of me and we really just (laughs) just hunkered down. Um, Now, you know, it gets sort of morally existentially exhausting to see the rest of the world sort of carry on as normal when you're still sort of trying to live as safely as possible. So I made a decision for myself to go on this healthcare retreat. And that was in May. They had us all test before the flight. Then they tested all of us as soon as we arrived. And they required everyone to be vaccinated and boosted. Now, I still went into it knowing it's possible that I'm going to get COVID from this. So I went on the trip and I got COVID. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh. Um, But um, I actually decided to wear an N95 as soon as I got home, at least for a couple days. Um, And I tested myself every day and I ended up testing positive two days later. So I ended up opting to go to the ER to get monoclonals. I felt much better 24 hours later. But I have to say that my husband, unfortunately, did end up getting COVID as well. And then we ended up in the ER with him a week and a half later because he had a horrible post-COVID migraine. Um, And if you're in medicine, you know that's a medical emergency. So again, my daughter somehow stayed negative. We wore N95s, had air filters and the windows open. She's a superhuman, I guess. Um, She never got COVID, but we both did. And my husband is honestly still dealing with pretty extensive fatigue and headaches from his COVID illness. So it wasn't mild in us. And I I, I share that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because first of all, navigating two COVID illnesses, fortunately, they were kind of back to back and not at the same time. Um, But navigating two COVID illnesses while taking care of our daughter felt like one of the worst experiences we've ever gone through because I had barely recovered from COVID when he got it. So I took over childcare then and I wasn't even at my best. So honestly, my daughter just watched a ton of movies. I will fully admit it, um, you know, and we did our best. But I could, you know, I could, my only backup childcare was my over 70 year old parents and I wasn't going to expose them. So again, I, when I share my story, the main point is not actually what we went through, but just thinking about what all these other families with far less resources than us have to go through. Um, and this is just my final push to say that this is one of the many reasons why we need vaccines for kids. Guess what? If my husband and I had COVID and, and my daughter had been vaccinated, she would have been able to go to school with a mask. Because if you are fully vaccinated, vaccinated, you even when you're exposed, you're supposed to wear a mask, but you're allowed to actually go to school. This is a small detail to most people. But when you're a parent, it is the detail, right? It is the detail because childcare Mm -hmm. has been one of the most stressful things beyond my medical training that I have ever gone through. And I'm a I'm a critical care doctor, right? So um, I, I just I can't impress upon anyone how much Getting our kids vaccinated will not only help with their overall health, but it'll also help with the overall health, mental and physical of the myriad of parents that are in my shoes. So, Dr. Patel, when parents come to you as a professional and, you know, ask you about their concerns with the vaccine for children, I mean, what what is your response to them? 
You know, the primary concern that a lot of parents are sharing is that death question. They say, well, barely any kids are dying or getting hospitalized, so why should I get this vaccine? And I think secondarily, a lot of parents are not, you know, it's not even a concern. They're just saying, I want this vaccine to be out for a couple of months before I give it to my child. My response always is a couple things. Number one, the technology is not new. Remember, it was developed in the 1990s for the original SARS and MERS outbreaks. So it's not that this technology suddenly came about with the advent of COVID. It, it was around and it was tested. We just didn't need to use those vaccines. Secondarily, you know, I what I would say is that when your child gets vaccinated, the most common side effect is going to be a little irritability, crying, and maybe a fever. Those were the most common side effects in the vaccine trials for both Moderna and Pfizer, in addition to some loss of appetite. We as parents go through that all the time with every vaccination our kids get. That's nothing new. There is a very real side effect that we have seen in our older adolescents, which is the myocarditis and pericarditis. Myocarditis is inflammation of the heart and pericarditis is inflammation of the lining of the heart. And we have seen both from Moderna and Pfizer, slightly higher from the Moderna vaccine, that adolescents, particularly male adolescents, did have this rare but serious side effect of myocarditis. I would never deny that it doesn't happen because it does. It has happened in our adolescent boys. But so far in the vaccine trials, we've seen no cases of myocarditis or pericarditis in the six-month to five-year-olds. However, we are going to obviously continue to look at the data once these vaccines are rolled out. So, you know, my overall approach when I educate on vaccines is to be very honest about the mild and potentially serious side effects, but then talk about the benefits. Our best armor against COVID and the related side effects is this vaccination. So I know it feels scary to give your child something that's new, but what we need to remember is that although the trials seem to go quickly, what they really did was have a massive amount of funding to be able to execute these trials in a shorter period of time. There were no shortcuts in terms of the evaluation for the safety and efficacy. It was just an unparalleled opportunity where the government had lots of funding to allow these trials to happen quickly. Dr. Patel, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always so lovely to talk to you guys. Dr. Anita Patel is a critical care pediatrician and an assistant professor at the George Washington University School of Medicine. On Friday and Saturday, the CDC and its advisors are set to meet. If they agree with the FDA panel's recommendation, kids under five could start getting vaccinated as early as next week. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Sabi Robinson and mixed by Rennie Svernofsky. It was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Alexis Diao. 
We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.